You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. Paul Fahey is the host of the Pope Francis Generation podcast. He is a catechist in the Catholic Church, and today I would like to get his perspective on how he understands the relationship between Catholicism and Christian Universalism. So, Paul Fahey, welcome to the Grace Saves All podcast. David, thanks for having me. Well, I, uh, I first heard you because you did an interview with Jordan Daniel Wood, on his book on Maximus Confessor, and I listened to that podcast, and I enjoyed it, and so I sent you an email, and you were nice enough to get back to me, and then so we started a a conversation. So I guess if anybody is to blame for this, it's Jordan Daniel Wood. Would that be fair? (laughs) Absolutely. That's always fair. (laughs) Well, how how did Jordan Daniel Wood get on your radar screen, and maybe tell us a little bit about Pope Francis generation and why you thought having Jordan on to talk about Maximus Confessor was something you wanted to do. Yeah, man, those are a couple of big questions. Um, so I first came across Jordan on a, oh, it was another podcast that I don't usually listen to, but it was, um, oh, I'm blanking on the name of it. Uh, it's a long form, like two hour discussion about his book on Maximus Confessor. And when I think of the mm-hmm. name, I'll say it, but um, honestly, I didn't understand half of it. Um, I listened to it a couple years ago as I was uh, making cookies for Christmas parties. And um, I went back and listened to it a second time, and I still only understood half of it. But something about what he was talking about when he he was talking about the way that Maximus talked about the Lord, um, I was like, this guy understands the Lord's goodness. Um, this guy is getting at something, um, that was really compelling. Even if I didn't fully understand it, it was really compelling. Um, and I probably reached out to him on, on Facebook or something after that. And then, uh, I had him on my podcast initially to, there was a handful of things I wanted to talk about, but the discussion was so good that we're like, oh man, we got to have a second one. I I didn't get to everything I wanted to talk Uh about. So we had a second one. This is back in the winter. And we still didn't get to everything I wanted to talk about. So then I had him on <laughs> to, to finally talk about uh, to finally talk about Christian universalism. Um, yeah, so that's why that's how I got connected with him. Is there was something in what he was saying about Maximus that seemed different and compelling to most Catholic theologians who I listened to? Um, and then the Pope Francis generation. Um, I started that a couple of years ago because I mean, the obvious answer is because I love Pope Francis, but a more in-depth answer is that I don't know if I would still be Catholic if it weren't for the teachings of Pope Francis. Hmm. Um, I read his book during the year of mercy back in 2015, 2016. Um, he published a book called the name of God is mercy, which is a quote from Pope Benedict. And it was a long form interview that for, with Pope Francis that was published. And I put that book down and I said to myself, I want to believe in the God that Pope Francis believes in. Um, and it, that was 
one of the very first dominoes of a series of dominoes over the next few years that moved me into a deeper conversion. I've been Catholic my whole life, but this was like the beginning of the process of having some small grasp of how good God is. Uh, Pope Francis has played a huge role in that. So my goal with the podcast is to present Catholicism um, really specifically from the lens of Pope Francis's teaching, which I think emphasize God's goodness, especially, um, but also in light of the kerygma, the initial proclamation, as well as the the doctrine of theosis or um, divinization, which is often missed in my experience in the Roman Catholic faith. So um, I hope to carve out a little space of Catholicism with things. Okay, well, so pardon me if that sounds a little Eastern Orthodox. I mean, <laughs> um, Eastern Orthodox folks talk about theosis, and and people in the Western Christian tradition just say, what? Yeah. And they say, yes. oh, well, this is how we understand salvation. And then we say in the Western Church, oh, well, so salvation is deliverance from sin. And then the people in the Eastern Church say, well— Actually, salvation is union with God. And then we say, what? <laughs> what does that mean? What's that all about? So maybe say a little bit about, about that. Yeah. So I was first introduced to the idea of theosis in a lecture I went to shortly after I graduated, um, graduated undergrad with a Catholic professor, Jared Ortiz, out of West Michigan. And I was like, this is really compelling. And I had a lot of questions. But at the time, I just didn't have time to explore it. Um, and it kind of sat on the back burner. And then six years ago, maybe I went on a retreat that my diocese hosted, a retreat for catechists, for catechist formation. And theosis was a huge component of that retreat. And it was presented within the context of the whole, like the, of it was presented within the context of the deposit of faith, not as its own thing. As like, this is a part of what we believe as Catholics. And I was the guy in the back raising my hand every five minutes with like, okay, but you can't mean that. Okay, but uh, that doesn't sound right. And just all these pestering questions. And the, uh, the, the presenters responded to my questions. And that, that retreat was also a key moment for me of like, wait, I thought... God came, Jesus, to save me from sin, as if that isn't good enough. But it isn't good enough. Mm -hmm. His saving me from sin is a means to a greater end. And I finally had a grasp on what that greater end is. Um, so yeah, I fully agree that uh, the Eastern, Eastern Catholics and Eastern Orthodox have a better grasp on this than, mm -hmm. than Western Catholics. Um, but it's so... It's so important. I think uh, I have, I noticed I noticed in the background you have a a picture. It looks like a Trinitarian. Yes. Um, yeah. Picture. Yeah. And if I think about theosis, it's the idea of be, be being invited into that relationship, into that Trinitarian relationship, and experiencing that union with God, and that's simultaneously sort of. Um, exciting and terrifying. I mean, on the one hand, we want to, you know, if we think about it in crude terms, we don't want to go to hell. We want to go to heaven. But I mean, God is a consuming fire. 
don't know that how close I actually want to get to God. Like maybe God is some kind of burning sun or some, you know, being or being a Trinitarian fire. And you wouldn't ever dream of getting, you know, you'd get burned up or, you know, you wouldn't want to get that close to it. But so this idea of entering into union with God and then that somehow, if you think about it, that that this that this will be a a, a large embrace that it's yeah. you know it it takes a while to wrap your head around that idea as oh that's my destination that's the destination of creation that, that at least that's what i th- think you can legitimately read maximus as, as saying in certain places that the well the goal now i'll sound a little bit like jordan daniel wood here <laughs> that the goal you know it isn't just, you know, salvation isn't just deliverance from sin. It's ultimately, uh, as difficult as this may sound, it's divination, that the creation may be divinized. Yes. And and I can imagine your hand going up in the back of the classroom. <laughs> what? <laughs> it sounds like too much. But then, okay, so, so I'm a catechist, and the catechism is... Like it's my text. Hey, explain Um, just for for a little bit for people who aren't familiar with the Catholic tradition, explain what a catechist is. Yeah. Okay. So, and just as a background, um, I'm I live too much in the Catholic bubble. So if I ever talk about things and you're like Catholics don't know what that means, interrupt me. Um, (laughs) You mean non-Catholics don't know what that means? That's yes. That's what I mean. Yeah. So a catechist is. there's like more technical sense, more general sense. Um, how it's normally understood is at a parish, a catechist is someone who educates children uh, in the Catholic faith. Um, but the role of the catechist more generally is someone who is um, in some way commissioned by the church, um, sometimes more formally, sometimes less formally, to, uh, so the word means to to echo down. So to pass on uh, the teaching of the church to others who are learning the church, and that may be children, that may be people who um, adults who want to become Catholic. Um, so it's it's a role of, and and we'll probably get to this later. It's different from the role of theologian. It's right, really yeah, the role of the, of passing on a message that isn't my own, passing on the church's message. Well, that that is interesting, and that kind of uh, gets me into something that I wanted to talk about because, and this gets us back to Jordan uh, Daniel Wood, he's a theologian, and you're a catechist. You know, it kind of reminds me of a joke, you know, like a theologian and a catechist walk into a bar. Um, <laughs> but what's going on here is, now this will be simplified, and why don't you flesh this out for me. The catechist is to, the role of the catechist is to say, in the best way that you can right now, fairly, where are we right now? What is the teaching of the church now? The role of the theologian is to uh, be doing the ongoing work of theological reflection in the life of the church and to um, be a part of that debate that ultimately... uh, can over time move the doctrine of the church, if you want to call it forward. And that if you look over hundreds and hundreds of years, you can see that there are, that there has been movement of doctrine forward over time. So 
yes, there is a way of saying the catechist can say, here is here. My job is to tell you where we are right now. The job of the theologian is to have discussions and make arguments about where we might be moving in the future. Is that fair? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So um, at the Second Vatican Council um, in, in the 1960s, um, one of the major teaching documents out of that council uh, is uh, Gaudium et Spes. And in that document, the church really articulated this idea that, um, that doctrine, which is really revelation, we can make distinctions between uh, the substance of doctrine and the way that we, human beings in the church, understand and express that doctrine. And the substance of doctrine, which is revelation, doesn't change because it's God's revelation. But the way we understand and express that doctrine is always changing and must change. And the way that it changes and develops or unfolds or moves forward, however we want to talk about it, um, that document talks about it's through the lives and reflection of the faithful, of the baptized, of Christians, through the, the study of theologians, and then ultimately through the teaching of the successors of the apostles, the popes and the bishops. So there's this sense that the, that doctrine is always unfolding and growing. But so the role of theologians is to help the church continue to move forward in its understanding and expression of God's, of God's revelation that is both unchanging, but also um, is also always going to be beyond our grasp in some way. There's always more God to understand. Um, when I talked with Jordan, uh, I pulled up this passage from Pope Francis uh, in one of his, his addresses last year where he talks about the role between theologians and catechists. Uh, so uh, now is this, is this the quote to the head of the doctrine committee that you were going to share? No, no, no. Um, uh, that's a different one. Um, okay. Okay. So yeah. this is a, okay. So what is this quote? So, so this is from, uh, this is Francis talking about, um, the, the broader context is him talking about how our understanding of doctrine unfolds, but then he talks about what's the role of the catechist in that and what's the role of the theologian. And he says okay. this. He says that theologians must go further, seek to go beyond. But I want to distinguish this from the catechist. The catechist must give the correct doctrine, the solid doctrine, not not possible novelties, some of which are good, but rather what is solid. The catechist transmits the solid doctrines. Theologians dare to go further, and it will be the magisterium, so that the pope and the bishops, it will be the magisterium that will stop them. But, but the vocation of the theologian is always to dare to go further because he or she is searching and trying to make theology more explicit. However, never give a catechesis to children and to people with new doctrines that are not sure. So in Francis's mind, in the church's mind, and I've really embraced this, my job as catechist is not to share my opinions and my ideas and the fruits of my own reflection. My job as catechist is to bring the person I'm teaching into an encounter, a personal encounter with Jesus Christ through the solid tradition and teaching of the church. Um, the role of the theologian is to dive into the doctrine and into revelation and to help the church move forward into greater understanding. Okay, well, let's talk a little bit about then how maybe that kind of works out, how it's worked out some in the history of the church. There have been 
certain issues that have where you could argue, say, well, okay, the church over time has moved forward in the way it thinks about this issue and that issue. So could you maybe go over some different examples of this in the history of the Catholic Church? Yeah, <clears throat> there's a there's a misunderstanding within Catholicism. Um, I, I think a wide misunderstanding that church teaching doesn't change. Um, but that is not how the church understands herself or her teaching in any way. Um, so one key theologian, one key Catholic theologian for understanding the development of doctrine, which is what this is called, is St. John Henry Newman. Um, so he, he lived in the 1800s. Um, he was um, an Anglican who converted to Roman Catholicism. And he wrote an essay on the development of doctrine, which is kind of the key text here. And he uses uh, organic illustrations to talk about how you can both have uh, layers, how you can have deep continuity of substance, but mm -hmm. discontinuity in, in uh, understanding and expression. So th um, three images that he uses that... Um, uh, he uses rivers and he uses trees and he uses butterflies. He may use others, but those are kind of the big ones mm -hmm. where he's like, he's like, you can look at a tree and you look at a sapling and you look at a full grown oak tree and they look very different. And the full grown tree is obviously greater and more beautiful and stronger, but it is in substance, the same thing as the sapling that it came from. Um, or you can look at a caterpillar and a butterfly, which, which I think is even maybe a more scandalous example because they look nothing alike. They look mm -hmm. like two completely different creatures. Um, but in substance, they are in fact the very same creature. Um, so the church understands that teaching does change. And sometimes that change can even look like a reversal. So some key examples of this are in in the in the mid 1800s you had pope pius i think it was the ninth who wrote um taught the syllabus of errors is what it's called now and he completely condemned the idea of religious liberty and then a century later at vatican ii um the church affirmed uh the right to religious liberty as an inalienable human right um which sure, sure looks like a reversal um, another example, and what, is that, it, what does that mean? Does that mean like in, in, uh, in democratic or in modern societies or in countries that people should have freedom to form their own, yeah, um, that, that, that shouldn't be necessarily dictated by the state. Correct. Is the state, is this, is this called integralism? So, uh, it's related. So, um, what the church taught at Vatican II is that the state, uh, should not coerce people into some type of religious belief that individuals have the right in their conscience to, to, uh, to follow what's good and true and beautiful towards the Lord, which isn't now the church is clear. That doesn't, it doesn't mean that the church views all religions as the same, but, but, but the right to individual uh, religious freedom still exists. We shouldn't be coerced in the faith. Okay. Um, integralism is kind of this newer movement and I'm not super aware of it. So, uh, if I get something wrong, uh, this is my disclaimer. Um, okay. <laughs> is that uh, 
Catholic integralists want to say, no, there should be such thing as a Catholic state. Um, and that those, that the state and the church should be mixed again, and that church authorities should be able to use the coercive power of the state in some way. Um, but that's really a going back to uh, before the reforms of the Second Vatican Council. Sounds kind of medieval to me. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, so some other examples. Um, so, so one is a moral example. In the, also in the 1800s, we saw the church's doctrine office uh, teach that, that slavery in and of itself is not morally repugnant. Um, and then we see at Vatican II, and then more explicitly with John Paul II, teach that actually slavery is intrinsically evil and that there is no intention and no circumstance that could ever justify it, um, which again looks like a reversal. Um, and then the third example, which is which is more relevant to the question of universalism, is for centuries and centuries, the church taught that uh, no one outside the Catholic Church can be saved. Um, and in like the Council of Florence in the 1400s, it explicitly said that means uh, Jews and heretics and schismatics, they're all damned to hell unless they become Catholic. Um, now, the Second Vatican Council took that doctrine and reinterpreted it. And, and instead of saying, well, if you're not Catholic, you're not saved, it said anyone who is saved, whether or not they're Catholic, is saved because of Christ, who is the one mediator between God and man, and through his body, which is the church. Um, and explicitly said that people outside the church who follow their conscience and seek in good faith what is true and good and beautiful are seeking Christ, even if they don't know the name of Christ. Um, and again, so here we see in all of these examples, you can point to, okay, here's the continuity and then here's the discontinuity. But again, sometimes the discontinuity looks like a reversal, um, so, so yeah, maybe that's a long way of answering your question. But in fact, church teaching does change and evolve, and it's continuing to change and evolve. Well, one of the things, um, you know, since I have become persuaded that Christian universalism is the best way for me to put my Christian faith together, and I, I, I'm not concerned about, not, I'm not concerned about falling outside the Christian tradition because I can look back over the history of the tradition and find people like Gregory of Nyssa and others that affirmed this. And even Augustine in his day recognized that there was a great number of people that had this view. And so anyway, I, I don't, I don't really feel like it's um, um, that big a deal, but uh, every now and then I'll run into somebody who'll say, well, doesn't this make you a, a heretic, you know, for, uh, for believing this, and nine times out of ten, the person that I'm talking to, and maybe ninety-nine times out of a hundred, the person I'm talking to is Protestant. And then I'll, I'll say, "Well, I mean, if you're concerned about heresy, um, all of Protestantism at one time was considered a schismatic heresy, damnable to hell." You know, so. So many of the, you know, the, the famous people that you would look to in your Protestant tradition, there was a lot of people that they, I mean, they were the heretics of their, <laughs> of their, of their day. Um, 
but then what you're saying, it, it, but maybe the reason that people don't feel that so much today is that because since Vatican II, that kind of distinction hasn't been really hasn't been made that way anymore. Well, I, I think that there's, I'll speak for myself here. Um, something that's really important to me in this discussion is my belief that, um, and, and and this is how the, the, the Catholic Church teaches it, that the that we have the sources of revelation, the sources of how we understand God, our Scripture, and then um, uh, the tradition, and, and especially the tradition of the apostles themselves, their unwritten, uh, lived expression of the faith. But that the third leg of that stool, scripture tradition, the third leg of that stool is the living magisterium, and that is the Pope and the bishops, the successors of the apostles who, who teach with the Pope. They are the only interpreter of, the only authentic interpreter of scripture and tradition. So as a Catholic, I believe that the Holy Spirit guides and protects the teaching of the teachings of the Pope and the bishops teaching communion with him. Um, to protect the Pope from ever teaching anything that's contrary to those two two pillars of revelation, scripture and tradition. Um, and that I really only understand scripture and tradition through the lens of the living magisterium. Um, because it is the 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 Pope and the bishops are the living interpreter. So for me, that really defines my um, my my understanding of revelation and it really puts parameters on um, it puts banks on the river of mm-hmm. when I've stepped out of orthodoxy or not um, that I imagine a Protestant doesn't feel those constraints as as much as I would as a Catholic yeah there what's what's uh, interesting is that uh, when you get into if you start talking about Christian universalism or looking into it there is a debate around the uh, fifth general council in 553. And at that point, origin is origins name is added to a list of heretics. And there are some imperial anathemas that precede that council, but were never voted on specifically by that council. And if um, uh, Al Kimmel over at eclectic orthodoxy has a really good article about the fifth uh, general counsel, if you're further interested in that. But the upshot of it was it sort of le- left this kind of a lasting cloud of suspicion around the idea of a universal restoration. And so sometimes, you know, even in, even in a Protestant setting, I'll hear somebody say, well, the church condemned um, universal salvation. The, the church has condemned that as a heretical teaching. And then the well, the, sort of the first thing I want to say is if I'm in a Protestant setting is I don't understand why that's, I mean, the one of the points of Protestantism was it's supposed to be scripture alone. And so why are you then referring to a medieval church council? I mean, it would make more sense to me if you were Orthodox or you were Catholic and you were concerned about the fifth general council. Um, but why are you, you know, why, why are you, uh, why are you suddenly referring to that now. So um, I guess then with, I could ask the question within, uh, I guess within your circles now, where does, 
this uh, discussion about Christian universalism fit in as you've been, uh, you know, anybody that's aware of the theological world right now is probably aware that, well, David Bentley Hart has has uh, entered into the fray in a quite dramatic way. And, you know, there was uh, Love Wins by Rob Bell over 10 years ago. And so this discussion in one way or another is kind of on our people's radar screens now, if, if we are at all kind of aware of what the theological uh, discussion is these days. So how, how does all of this, um, I guess, yeah, how does all this land on your radar screen? Yeah. Yeah, maybe I'll start with um, some things that uh, that the current teaching of the Catholic Church like does say. Like uh, the Roman Catholic Church uh, affirms at least the possibility of eternal conscious torment. That hell exists. That people that a individual can can choose hell through their own free will, um, and that uh, at the time of someone's death. Um, their life choice, as Pope Benedict put it, their life choice becomes definitive, and um, and if they if they chose hell, if they chose separation from God, then that will persist for all of eternity. Um, so that that is the current teaching of of the Roman Catholic faith. Um, how, but but we also have, especially since Vatican II. And the Catholic theologian Hansers von Balthasar, um, who who is a really pivotal theologian during the Council and after the Council, he's widely respected. Um, he proposed something uh, we might call a hopeful universalism that fits within the bounds of uh, Catholic orthodoxy. And what what he would essentially say, uh, drawing I believe from uh, Saint Edith Stein is that um, we know that God desires all to be saved because he's told us that in scripture. We also know that grace can work on a person and move in their hearts and move their hearts even before they agree um, to participate with grace. Um, That grace can change our desires um, even before we agree to participate. Okay, so if God desires all to be saved, and God can move people's hearts before they participate, then doesn't it follow that uh, a God who is outside of time at the moment of someone's death, even if they were the most wicked person, would throw all that he has at this person to move their hearts, to enlighten their will, to free them of all the burdens that restricted their own freedom, to allow this person to desire and choose what's good. Um, And therefore... Hell can exist in theory, but it is infinitely improbable that a person would choose hell in the end. Um, and I would say um, that's where I'm at personally, and I and I believe fully that that is within the bounds of Catholic orthodoxy as it's taught now. Well, let me just say that I think that's for I'm imagining somebody who's maybe Catholic and who's wondering, okay, well, how much can, you know, with what extent, how how could I possibly make a Christian universalist um, way of thinking a part of my Christian faith? They could certainly uh, go to uh, 
Hans Urs von Balthasar's book, uh, Dare We Hope, uh, that all are saved. I believe that's the title of it. And it's in that uh, section you just talked about. He's quoting Edith Stein. You referred to as Saint Edith Stein. Yep. Um, and, and, and there, she has a quite nice section there about, I'll just call the sneaky way of grace <laughs> that moves around. It sort of moves around and does things and doesn't even ask our permission. Uh, and it's already there working before we're even consciously aware of its, of its momentum. That's in a way, that's one of the things that kind of, I used to think, um, that I had become a Christian because I chose to become a Christian because it was, it was something that happened for me as a young adult. But the more that I reflected on it in later years, I began to think, but there were all kinds of things working in the background. And some, if I think about it, there are lots of little things that I can bring to mind that I was aware of. And then if I allow myself to go even further, I can imagine that there's also things working in the background that I wasn't even, you know. So I began to get this idea, well, maybe I'm just being carried along by grace and God's spirit working into me. And, it, and it, 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 when I woke up, I somehow credited myself to a decision that I had been being sort of predisposed to in all kinds of ways. And, and then that kind of got me to the point of thinking more along the lines of, even though I didn't, don't agree with everything that Augustine said, Augustine had this way of thinking that if you were one of the ones that God had in mind to save, that God would be working in this way in your life and that your salvation, even though it might appear to you as a choice that you made in time, was never really in question that there was always God's superintending mercy and grace and love was always going to bring you uh, from the beginning of creation. There was never any doubt in God's view that, that nothing else would ultimately happen to you, that you would be brought along to this point. How does, how does all of that kind of sound to you? Yes. Yeah. I think, um, <laughs> uh, I have a catechist friend and she says, she said something like, um, uh, I've never had a good thought on my own. Um, mm -hmm. and I, th I think that that's absolutely true. Like if we think of grace and, and oh, this is something else that I see within, within Roman Catholicism, that's often problematic is there's this imagining of grace as something other than God as like a spiritual vitamin or a spiritual energy drink or, or something. When in fact, grace is nothing less than God's very own life given to us freely. Um, that grace is moving in us just because we exist. Cause God is, because we can't exist without, uh, without God being consciously mindful of us. So if we exist, I'm being held in existence by grace in some way um, at the very minimum. So we have this like grace is always moving in us um, and is always working to do the will of God. And the will of God is that all are saved, um, that I am saved personally and that all are saved uh, in, in, in totality. Um, perhaps this is the same quote from St. Saint, from, from Saint Edith Stein that you were mentioning um, 
uh, uh, but she says, and this is this is a short quote. She says that uh, all merciful love can thus descend to everyone, and we believe that it does so. And now, can we assume that there are souls that remain perpetually closed closed to such love? As a possibility in principle, this cannot be rejected. In reality, it can become infinitely improbable, precisely um, through what preparatory grace is capable of affecting in the soul. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think in that same quote, she talks a little bit about not it not even asking permission. It just... Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. I mean, there's a wonderful illustration of this in Scripture where we see um, Peter's first encounter with Jesus, where he's out fishing all night, right? And then he comes back on shore after catching nothing. And then the gospel recounts Jesus is in his boat. It doesn't say how Jesus got on his boat. It doesn't say that Jesus asked to get on his boat. It just says Jesus is now in his boat. And that's how I've experienced grace in my life. It's just there. I didn't, <laughs> didn't ask to be invited. It's just there. And now it's asking me. So now Jesus is turning to Peter and is asking Peter to go back out and to cast his nets again. And... Um, I think this is captured uh, really well in um, in in the in the, in the TV show The Chosen. There's a nonverbal dialogue between Jesus's look and Peter's response, where something about the way that Jesus looks at Peter, something about the way that he asks that question, moves Peter's heart to respond. Um, and that's how I've experienced grace in my life. It just shows up. It doesn't ask my permission first. And then it invites me to give a response. But in the asking, it's also giving me the power and the desire to respond as well. It's all grace. My participation is just to receive what the Lord is already doing. Well, that reminds me of the uh, one of my favorite stories is uh, Jesus sitting at table with the tax collectors and the sinners and how that really upset, you know, in powerful ways, the understanding of the of the teaching of the day, which is that basically you were not supposed to mix. The Jews, Jew, Jews were supposed to be pure and holy and clean and not supposed to mix with things that were unclean. So for Jesus to sit down and then mix with these unclean people and be eating with them, you know, scandalous in ways that we can't even understand. Uh, but the way that, but I try to imagine the way in which Jesus sat with them, his body language, how he looked at them, you know, and, and when I think about it, I imagine Jesus engaging with them in body language and the way he looked at them and the way he looked in their eyes, that that this was the same surprise. This person is not with us. This, this person is not with us in a standoffish kind of way. This person is really with us. He's in the boat. Just yeah. just like you were saying. Yeah. Yeah. Um so th there's a few things more that I want to say about church teaching here. Can I add that? Okay. In? Yeah. Go ahead. Um, one of my favorite, if not if not my absolute favorite passage from the Catechism of the Catholic Church, is uh, which is divided into paragraph numbers. So uh, paragraph two twenty one says, "God's very being is love, and by sending His only Son in the spirit of love in the fullness of time, God has revealed His innermost secret." that God himself is an eternal exchange of love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and he has destined us to share in that exchange. Our destiny, the reason that we were created in the first place, is theosis, is this profound union with God. 
And no, so like us there, when he says that and created us, would that be humanity? Yeah. Yeah. It is. That is all inclusive. Um, so already we see in this language, this like our destiny is God. Our orientation is God. Our telos, our end is God. This is our destiny. This is the reason that we were made. Um, a couple uh, other passages from the Catechism. So um, paragraph 1821 says, In hope, the church, meaning the all the baptized, all Christians for all time, in hope, the church prays for all men to be saved. And there's another passage where it says, the church, again referring to the whole expanse of the body of Christ, the church prays that no one should be lost. Lord, let me never be parted from you. If it is true that no one can save himself, it is also true that God desires all men to be saved and that for him, all things are possible. So these are, so these are affirmative teachings within the catechism that to me point to, um, to be a faithful Catholic is to hope that all people are saved and to hope anything else is to desire something less than what God desires, to desire something different than what God desires. Um, so to me, this brings out the question of, so what kind of hope are we talking about here? Um, and what is and what is our hope put in? Um, I think perhaps um, pre-Vatican II Catholicism would put hope in the reception of baptism. Um, and we saw this a lot in the church's practice of both urgency, which is a good urgency, but a real urgency to make sure babies get baptized as quickly as possible so they don't, so, so that they're saved. But we also see this in the, um, if a baby was like stillborn, for example, and not baptized, sometimes the church wouldn't even give them a Christian funeral. Sometimes they weren't allowed to be buried in the Catholic cemetery because you had to be baptized to be buried in a Catholic cemetery. Um, and that quite likely this baby was damned to hell. Or at best, there was this like theological ideal of limbo that like, okay, they're not, the baby can't be in heaven, but the baby didn't sin, so it can't be suffering. So there's this like edge of hell, third place called limbo of like natural happiness or something that the scholastics came up with um our the hope was in baptism but but aquinas actually corrects this and in a passage in the summa um in the section where he's talking about can the way can the wayfarer be saved he says and this is a quote from saint thomas hope does not trust chiefly in grace already received so i understand that to mean baptism and grace already received but on God's omnipotence and mercy, whereby even he that has not grace can obtain it so as to come to eternal life. The source of our hope is God himself, is the person of Jesus Christ, specifically his power and his mercy. So like, so what does hope look like then? Um, And I think of like, if my hope is in the person of Jesus, then it's a relational kind of hope. It's a hope that's built on trust in who this person has shown themselves to be. So like, I don't know, here's a really, here's, here's a really maybe like, like vulgar example. Um, my wife and I have five kids. 
I don't hope that my, <clears throat> okay, so do I know with scientific like certainty that my wife would ever intentionally harm our kids? I can't know that with this perfect scientific certainty, but I know with hopeful certainty, because I know my wife, that she would never harm our, my kids, right? Mm-hmm. Like, because of who, the character of who she has revealed herself to be. And this is how human beings function in the world, right? We get to know someone, become friends with someone, and they reveal their character to us. So we trust that they're going to do what they say they're going to do. We trust in who they are. How much more God, Jesus Christ, and his mercy and his power and his love that's infinitely greater than me or my wife or any other human being, how much more can I trust and hope in his character, in his power, in his love, in his mercy, to do the thing that he wants to do, which is to save all people. So um, in the church's funeral liturgies, when praying for a Christian who's been baptized, the phrase that's used is, we pray in sure and certain hope that they are saved. And I think that that's maybe better language. Hope is not this ethereal, emotional thing. To hope and, and to have our hope rested on the person of Jesus is a sure and certain hope. So when I think of what is hopeful universalism, what does it mean when the church prays and hopes that all are saved? I think it's a sure and certain hope, not an ethereal, emotional hope. Does that make sense? Yeah, what you were saying is that that hope isn't just a feeling, it's grounded on a person. And as uh, what you're saying is the Christian hope, as you understand it, for the um, that all will finally be well, is grounded not just, oh, I hope things turned out, but it's grounded somehow in the essential character of Jesus, and then there you see the essential character of God. Exactly. Okay, well, what if I was... Uh, one of your students, and um, and I came to you, and I said, um, "Well, how, first of all, uh, how old are your students?" Um. So, so at the moment, um, <laughs> and I have this debate with myself. Uh, so, I worked formerly for a Catholic church for almost eight years, and now I'm a full time student. I no longer work for the church. I do some catechetical work, leading retreats um, and, and things like that, but I don't actually have students at the moment. Okay, so in other uh, words, you could, uh, like if I was a Catholic person, I might be at a retreat and you would be identified as a catechist. And so then you would be kind of a reliable person that I could ask a question to. Yes. Yep. Okay, so let's say, um, you know, I, I see you at, and I hear some of the things you've been talking about and I say, okay, so... I'm, you know, a member of the Catholic Church, and but I've really become persuaded that I can't, it can't, I can't understand how God could be perfectly good unless God's perfect goodness finally permeates everything and everyone. So the way I'm starting to think about this, it's, um, it's really the goodness and the character of God that is going to be revealed finally at the end. And if all are not saved, I can't figure out a way that God can still be all good. So this has really become for me uh, kind of an essential part of my understanding of who God is, how I relate to God. For instance, now when I pray to God or I think about God, 
I give thanks to the God who is the God who will finally be all in all. And, and, and when I, that's just, that's just who God has become for me, practically speaking. It just kind of happened as I was thinking about all this, and this is kind of settled in my soul, and it's kind of how my spirituality is working. It says, how does this affect me now within the Catholic, within the Catholic Church? Yeah, I mean, I think I would want to, in personal conversations, um, ask questions and and figure out like, um, share these passages of the Catechism, share the things that, that I've been sharing, and ask if this space of a sure and certain hopeful universalism, if that encompasses what you're seeking, right, and where you've and the kind of God you have come to believe. And if so, I would be like, awesome, wonderful. Like you, your beliefs about who God is and about Christian universalism and how like that's within the bounds of like Orthodox Catholicism. And I'm really glad that you're here. Um, So uh, yeah, I would want to parse that out. But it sounds like you're maybe expressing something different than the sure and certain hopeful universalism. Right. Yeah. Like I would be expressing like an absolute necessity that if if even one was lost or even might be lost, that would be enough for me to um, not be able to recognize God as good, that that would for me you know that would be uh, the, i'm understanding like in first john that god is light god is love god is light in whom there's no darkness at all well that would qualify as a little bit of darkness and i wouldn't know then uh what to do what to do with that so i'm pretty much now at the point where i'm you know it's an absolute unreserved necessary um logically <laughs> impossible to defeat um point of view that I am, that I'm holding. Um, so what is that? <laughs> what is what does that yeah. do? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, I would probably have the honest discussion of my understanding of Catholic teaching is that that would fall outside uh, the banks of the river. Um, that there may be a lot of that that falls within the banks, but this idea of like absolute necessary certainty. Uh, in universalism would fall outside the, the banks of what the church uh, currently teaches. Um, and I would, like, I would invite you to, as I understand, as I understand church teaching is that where our current teaching on hell comes from, it, it comes from both uh, um, the passages in scripture that talk about um, in eternal hell, which on your podcast, you've had, Dozens of discussions unpacking this, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, um, and it also it also rests on a very um, a very profound concern about God respecting human freedom. Um, so Catholic teaching now isn't that God sends people to hell; it's that people in their free will choose hell, um, and that God does not coerce people into loving Him that he may have, I think this comes from Augustine, he may have created us without us, 
but he won't save us without us and that he wants, he wants our free participation. Um, and again, that's something, uh, you've talked about numerous times, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so, so the church's magisterium is very concerned about those things. So like if you were someone I, I was, I was working with and that's the belief that you came with, I would say, I, I would invite you to go and read what the church says and to read it with a humility and a docility of a student before a teacher who's been around for 2000 years. Um, and, but also knowing that as much as, <laughs> I mean, one of those concerns is that God doesn't coerce people and like neither does the church, right? So um, what's being asked is real humility and real docility. What isn't being asked is conformity. So um, I would, I would say personally, um, if you're coming as, as a, an adult Christian who wants to join Catholicism and this is your hangup, I would say come and receive, come with, but come with a spirit of docility and humility um, with an openness to being corrected with an openness to the church, maybe eventually being able to provide something that persuades you. Um, and with that openness and docility, humility, allow the Holy Spirit to work. Um, knowing that the Holy Spirit is capable of changing your heart and mind in ways that are unexpected. And the Holy Spirit's capable of, if, if this is God's will, for the church to evolve in her understanding of salvation um, even in unexpected ways as well. Um, that creative fidelity is something that the Holy Spirit does particularly well. Um, <laughs> and to and to sit in that place of tension. Um, I would also ask, right, like, don't present your like beliefs as if they were church teaching. Like, don't mis don't misrepresent the church. Um, mm -hmm. that would be important, but your faithfulness and your prayers and your contemplation, um, even if they're not publicly made, still helps the church move and develop and grow in her understanding of revelation. Um, I was just thinking too, well, well, what, you know, let's say that on, let, let's just sort of play this out a little bit. And let's say that I said, okay, well, maybe I can do this. And I went and got um, a PhD in theology how would then I become part of the the the, uh, the the theological? How would I don't want to say how would I graduate from a, <laughs> to a theologian so I can have these discussions? But is that some kind of formal process that one goes through to get to become a theologian that sort of moves moves a little further out and has some of these? Um, you know, unpacks like, you know, the whole thing about freedom of will and, well, is it really denying somebody's will if the catechism teaches that we are designed for union with God, then then, then God would not be um, denying their free will. God would be liberating their free will. Um, and so there is no problem. You know, I could get out there and start making all of these um, arguments and counter arguments. How, how, would, how would that work? Yeah. I mean, I'm not a member of the Guild of Theologians, so I don't actually know how someone gets membership <laughs> into that. Um, but there, but, but there, there is a document the church wrote, I think in the 90s, called Donum Veritatis, and it's about the vocation of the theologian, the whole, whole document. Okay. 
And there is a section in there on, so what does a theologian do if in good conscience, they, they reach a conclusion different than the magisterium of the church. And it gives a path. It gives channels of, okay, what we don't want you to do is like hop on social media and create an alternative <laughs> magisterium that like my beliefs represent the real church. Like, don't do that. But there are, but there are channels that are, um, that are, um, faithful to the authority of the magisterium where you can make those concerns known to the magisterium and you can help the church grow and help the magisterium grow in understanding. Um, those channels exist. Um, now, it's kind of a nuanced path. Um, uh, I think the magisterium is, is always concerned about is always concerned about public dissent. Um, but um, yeah, that path is in there. Um, and I think under Francis especially, he has shown a real openness to to uh, less orthodox views of theologians. Um, than his predecessors had, not in saying, you know, like, like carte blanche, those things are good, but inviting to the table and be like, it's worth hearing what you have to say, even if we, even if I don't agree with you. And even if I don't end up agreeing with you, it's still worth hearing what you have to say. I think the church under Francis is becoming more open to that. Well, to me, what you're doing right there is you're kind of uh, capturing the mood of the Pope Francis generation, you know, I hope so. <laughs> yeah. That's what, to, you know, to me, I think that like the average person listening into this conversation would think, huh, there was a lot more, there's a lot more room for discussion and participation and belonging than I would have imagined maybe before, you know, before, you know, because you imagine, you know, a, a, the, a Catholic theologian is going to be fun and and inquisitive and interesting, whereas a catechist is just going to be, nope, here's what it is. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so that's not what that's not what's happening here. You're you have a good way of saying, OK, kind of here's where we are. Here's where we are right now. Um, and and then here's the conversation, you know, and. And here are kind of the rules of fair play yes. <laughs> yes. that we are that we are go by within our community. So I, I hope that that's I hope that that's the feeling that people have gotten from this uh, conversation. And, and and I think part of the rules of fair play is kind of looking at the way that the way that the church has grown. So. On, on the question of salvation for those outside the Catholic Church, um, Vatican II didn't just come out of nowhere, right? Like there were growing and, and the, a thread of theology from the scriptures to the 20th century that showed an openness to salvation for those who weren't baptized. I mean, starting with um, St. Dismas, the good thief on the cross next to Jesus, where Jesus promises him, you'll be with me in paradise. He wasn't baptized, right? Um, mm -hmm. To the early church, recognizing that when you had catechumens, those preparing for baptism who weren't baptized, who were being killed, um, that they too 
were saved through a baptism by blood or a baptism by desire, that the Lord sees someone's heart first um, and the ritual second, right? Um, so we have this, this growing understanding that, yes, the normative means that God gave us to be saved and to have an assurance of our salvation is baptism. But um, the Lord is not bound by his sacraments, and he can do what he wills, and what he wills is for all to be saved. Um, we see this even, even just this past summer, just a couple months ago. Um, I knew uh, there were some... So in the Catholic faith, you have saints, those who are declared by the church to be uh, in heaven and to have like a recognition as models of holiness. And then underneath saint is blesseds. And those are, um, there's pretty nuanced distinctions between them. When someone's named a blessed, there is an assurance that yes, these people are in heaven and yes, they're models, but they're more like more local cart cults like than universal um, patrons. Um, okay. But anyway, so those are, those are like, you have blesseds and saints. The church holding up people and saying, these people are in heaven, these people are models. Okay. So just a couple months ago, Pope Francis named the Uma family, U-L-M-A, the Uma family, um, uh, husband, wife, and I think seven kids. They are recognized as martyrs in the church. They were a Polish family during the Second World War, and they were um, they were hiding and smuggling Jewish refugees to keep them safe from the Nazis. And someone in their community ratted them out, and the Gestapo showed up and killed all the people they were hiding and gunned down the whole family, um, all in cold blood, the parents, all the kids. When the church just just a couple months ago named this family, all of them blesseds, they included the unborn baby of the mother of Mrs. Ulma. And, and to my understanding, this is the first time ever an unbaptized baby has been de- declared a blessed in the Catholic Church. Hmm. So we see this trajectory of the church in this understanding of, yes, the normative means of salvation is baptism, but we have a growing understanding that God is not bound by his sacraments, that he does what he wills. Um, and we see this too in, um, the, like I talked about, Vatican II's teaching on salvation outside the church, but we see it more recently in, in here, so here's the passage from under Pope Benedict XVI, there's the International Theological Commission. And, oh, yeah. Yeah. So they wrote a document about limbo and really critiquing this um, a theoretical idea of limbo in favor of a hopeful, uh, sure and certain hopefulness in salvation of unbaptized infants. And they have this passage. So this is from the International Theological Commission. From a theological point of view, the development of a theology of hope and an ecclesiology of communion, together with a recognition of the greatness of divine mercy, challenge an unduly restrictive view of salvation. In fact, the universal salvific will of God and the correspondingly universal mediation of Christ mean that all theological notions that ultimately call into question the very omnipotence of God and his mercy in particular are inadequate. Now, Pope Francis quoted this document just this past summer 
when he named Cardinal Fernandez to be the new head of the doctrine office of the Catholic Church. When when I hear this, I hear that the popes are setting a trajectory, and that is, as church teaching continues to develop in the future, one of the criterion will be questioning any theology that's come before that diminishes God's omnipotence and his mercy, and therefore putting his power and his mercy as like a key criterion for understanding what a positive development looks like. So I only see, and again, this is my personal assessment, that um, that a more sure uh, and certain hopefulness and universal salvation is what's going to grow as the church develops. I don't see a different, a, the opposite trajectory happening. Um, just looking at the, the expanse of development and then looking at these recent statements. Well, let's say that I'm a, uh, I don't know, a Catholic, a Catholic person that's more interested in some of these issues, or I'm somebody that might be interested in Catholicism for some reasons. Um, how would the Pope Francis Generation podcast help help me? And um, is there a way that people can uh, like send emails to you if they have questions or, or to the Pope Francis Generation podcast? How does that all work? Yeah, so if you go to popefrancisgeneration.com, um that's the host website for the podcast. I have some I have some blogs and newsletter there and you can contact me through there. Um what I hope to provide in that space is a place for Catholics to talk about their faith and to bring without a fearfulness, right? Uh God is truth itself. He is not threatened by our questions. Um the Catholic faith is not threatened by our questions or doubts or our uncertainties to bring those to the table. And I think that Pope Francis, especially in his teaching, with his emphasis of the centrality of God's mercy, um, gives a space for more of that, more of that working out that like, um, When I hear Pope Francis and the whole of his teaching and the whole of his ministry, I hear him telling people, the Lord wants you, the Lord desires you, um, and he wants you to be in relationship with him. You don't need to perform to belong. You don't need to believe the right thing or act the right way to belong. You already belong to the Lord. You already belong to the church. And then in that secure space of belonging, you will see uh, growth and change in what you believe and how you behave, but that there's a primacy of belonging and acceptance of God first. Um, that's the type of space, that's the space, that's what I hear Pope Francis doing. And that's the type of space that I hope uh, that the Pope Francis generation creates is that you can come and have a sense of God's love and acceptance so that he can continue to do the work of, of divinizing you in this life. Well, Paul, I'm very uh, glad about your podcast and glad to get to talk with you and to have you as a as a resource. If I have further thoughts and questions about, you know, it'd be fun to bounce them off of you. And if somebody came to me and they said, uh, you know, I'm Catholic and I'm thinking about this or um, where, where, you know, where can I go to find out more information? I'm happy now to have them as a resource to send to you. And so anybody listening to this podcast that if you have questions, uh, 
that you think Paul would be good to answer, we'll head on over to the Pope Francis Generation uh, website and podcast. And I think that there should be uh, lots of uh, resources for you there. And Paula, thank you for your time to come on the podcast today and to, you know, have this kind of nuanced uh, conversation about these um, about these kinds of things. And I think that, I mean, the feeling I take away from this is that I think a lot of people would be surprised at how much room and nuance and hopefulness that is, um, you know, that's possible within the Catholic context. So I I hope that that's a a good outcome of this conversation. David, thank you so much. All right. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, Let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.